Well, welcome to Sojourn. We are glad that you're here. We believe here and uh, prioritize the gospel, the good news that we can have life with God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that if we place our faith in him, we can live life under God's good reign and his good rule. And that's not just a message that we think is for unbelievers. We are very much convinced that that is the message that we need as believers as well. It not only forms us as the people of God, but it fuels us forward as his people as well. We get the, the honor and the mercy to be able to look at the, the gospel each week in his word. And it's hard maybe for us to imagine as we've gone through the gospel of Mark that there's something past Mark 13. We spent four long weeks in that difficult chapter, but while Jesus was teaching on this mountain in Mark 13, evil was not resting. Indeed, evil was brewing and is about to brew over. And Jesus came and, and he upset the order of things within Jerusalem and within the surrounding regions. And lines are being drawn now that people are going to pick a side or another. And so Mark, as this is all going on, as you kind of see like Jesus and his greatness and his teaching and, and evil still brewing all the while, Mark relates a story of people lining up on different sides. It's an encouraging story. It's also a story of, of warning, a cautionary tale. There's beauty in it. There's also treachery. There's love and devotion and worship. There's also hate and rage. And so Mark serves us up another sandwich, I think, here, that kind of has on each side the, the hate, the rage, the treachery. And in the middle, he shows us deep love and devotion. And the contrast, I think, to our, of, of between them are meant to, I think, encourage us and to warn us. Mark breaks from the discourse that he gave in, in chapter 13, and he puts before us treachery and discipleship. Treachery and devotion. He says in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he gives us a, a time period. He, he jumps us back into where we are. He, he puts us back into the, the final days of Jesus' life and ministry on this earth. The, the Passover was a celebration that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. And likely this is something that you're familiar with. The, the Passover was one of God's great signs that he gave to his people as he was redeeming them, delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. This was the one where, where they had to, the Israelites, the people of God, were to take a lamb and to slaughter this lamb and take some of the blood and put it over their doorposts. That way, when the angel of death came through, they would be passed over. That God would deliver them by giving them a sacrifice instead of their firstborn dying. And they followed it. And so the Passover was a commemoration, a remembering of what God had done to deliver them from death. And slavery in Egypt and how he delivered them out of there by his power, by his mighty working, not because they had deserved it or earned it. And the Passover is then directly followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, remembering that they were pulled out of Egypt and they had to go in haste from Egypt, that they, they couldn't even let the leaven rise. They had to get all their stuff and leave. And so it celebrated God's powerful acts that delivered them. Their hasty departure, it celebrated so many good things that God had done. But look at what's going on during this time that's supposed to be looking back at God's great and powerful work, his deliverance, his redemption. Look at what's happening. The people that are supposed to be leading, the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking, verse 1, how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Their objective is frightfully clear. They want to kill Jesus. They've rejected him. And in their rejection, they're, they're not content to just remain with just saying, he's not the son of God. They have to destroy him. They seek his elimination. Now let's remember that this, these chief priests and these scribes, this is part of the religious establishment, the religious elite of the time. These are the guys that know the law, that are supposed to be leading out in it. They were the ones who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people. They're the recipients of God's word, given the stewardship to lead God's people. And often in the Gospels, they're also the recipients of Jesus' toughest rebukes. They're also the ones that are the main schemers to Jesus' arrest. Instead of leading God's people into pure worship of the Lord and true obedience to the law, they plot to kill the Son of God. Instead of being examples of, of holy living, Jesus has to warn people about them, as he did in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 38, he says, Beware the scribes. They like to walk around in robes, and they like greetings in the marketplace, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Instead of look to them, they're supposed to be leading, he has to say, Watch out for them. Not only are they bad and poor leaders, but they also might destroy some of you, so be really careful with them. Perhaps the depth of their problem is summed up a little bit in verse 2, as they're seeking to arrest Jesus and to kill him, and they says, well, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. In other words, we could kind of, in a sense, boil their problem down to their fear of an uproar more than their fear of the one who can cast body and soul into hell. So what Mark does with this is he says, this is what's going on. And he sticks a pin in their plotting, their treacherous plotting, and he'll return to it. But in the middle, we get a little reprieve, a rest in a sense. We get to see something beautiful, hopefully that's encouraging. You see, the final days of Jesus' life had plenty of treachery, plenty of plotting. We're going to see plenty of that as we march through the end of the Gospel of Mark. But it also, there were other things going on as well. It wasn't all treacherous. It wasn't all plotting his death and demise. There were some beautiful things. Worship was happening. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, Bethany was a city that was a few miles away from Jerusalem. This is where Jesus likely stayed the remaining nights before his death. While he was there... In the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. Now, it's probable that this story that Mark relates here is the same story we found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And if it's the same story, and we have good reason to think that it is, then this woman is Mary, Lazarus's sister. But Mark doesn't name her. He leaves her unnamed, but he doesn't leave her deed unspecified. He gives lots of detail to this. He says that a woman came in, and that alone it was a break of societal norms. It was a courageous move for her to walk in and to break kind of the social code of the time just to interrupt this supper that they're having in order to honor Jesus. It's courageous. It's bold. It's a demonstration of her heart, of her faith and love. But what this, 
What Mark does with this woman is what he does with some other women in his gospel. They're intruding in Jesus' life and ministry a few different times in his gospel. And their intrusion is a display of their faith. In Mark chapter 5, you see this woman who struggled with bleeding. And, and Jesus is on an urgent task. He's going to heal someone's, and, and he's going to bring them back from death. And in the middle of this, as he's urgently moving with this man, a woman comes up and touches him and interrupts the flow, right? Stops him from his objective. But it was a display of her faith. She thought, if only I could touch the hem of Jesus' garment, then I could be made well. It's a display of her faith. In Mark chapter 7, if you look back there, in verse 24 and 25, Jesus goes to kind of a far-off region, the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he enters a house, right, not wanting anyone to know. He's trying to kind of get away, maybe. And yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. She intrudes. She interrupts because she has faith that Jesus can bring the healing that I need. And these interruptions are not interruptions to Jesus. They're interruptions in the flow of the text, maybe, but they're not interruptions to Jesus and his divine plan and mission. They're divine appointments for him. He was glad to step into them. He was glad to bring relief and healing that they actually need. That's what he came for. And here in Mark 14, this unnamed woman comes in and she follows a line of faithful interrupters who are displaying their faith by interrupting whatever Jesus is doing because they have something for him. And what she does next goes even further to display her devotion and her faith. She takes this flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she breaks it and pours it over his head. Now, this is what Mark makes sure that we know is a costly anointing. It was no small sacrifice for her. Now, anointing someone was a way to honor them to kind of set them apart for something special or as something special. It was a way to honor guests. And she has a specific target. It's not Simon the host. That would have been a good target. Simon was a leper. We don't know his story. Perhaps Jesus had healed him, but we know he's not a leper anymore because he's hosting this party. That would have been against the law unless he'd been transformed, unless something had happened. So maybe this is a man that Jesus has healed. Maybe we even saw his healing earlier in the Gospel of Mark. That would have been something to honor. Let's set this man apart that he would welcome Jesus and his disciples into his home after what Jesus has done for him. She doesn't go for him. He's the host. But he's not the one she's after. She brings her offering to Jesus. And she brings a great gift, a costly gift to anoint him. An alabaster flask of pure nard, which probably doesn't mean much to us. But one early historian said that the best ointment is preserved in alabaster. So there you go. It was the best container, and it contained some rare ointment, some rare oil. It was costly. It was expensive, sweet-smelling, aromatic. would make you drawn to it. This alabaster flask of ointment could have been a family heirloom passed down that someone had acquired along the way and passed it down, and now she has it. It could have been for her. It likely was a, a sense of financial security, but it was costly enough that if she gets into a, some sort of financial bind, this could get her out of it. This could help her. This could save her if necessary. It could be her emergency fund. 
It could be her, her future provision. So let's say I can no longer work anymore, and then I, but I still have this I can sell and maybe perhaps live a little bit longer. But she doesn't use it to pass on to her family. She doesn't keep it as a financial security. She doesn't store it away for future provision. She breaks it open, giving it to Jesus. And she doesn't pour a few drops out. She empties the entire thing, pouring it on Jesus, anointing him. And Mark is conveying the, the sense of totality of this gift and in this gift. Nothing is left. Even if she could get it back in the flask, there's nothing left to put it in. It's been completely poured out, completely opened for the sake of Jesus. And I think that Mark means to show us that the, this poured out oil is a display of this woman's poured out life given to Jesus. A thing that Jesus calls later beautiful. A beautiful thing that she's done. She doesn't come to receive anything. She makes no request to Jesus she doesn't say, come heal my daughter, although that's not a wrong request. She just comes to honor him. She's not obeying a law. She's not looking back and say, well, it says in Leviticus that we're supposed to do this. She's not doing any of that. She's not required to give this to Jesus. There's no requirement for her to give of this offering. She simply comes to honor Jesus. In other words, I think that we can say of this woman that she is convinced that it profits her nothing if she could gain the world but lose her soul. That she has lost her life in order that it might be found in Christ. And she shows it by breaking open this flask and pouring it over him, anointing him. With the religious elite in the background, it, it's an unnamed woman that gives us the example of total devotion and discipleship, doesn't it? And I wonder, as we see this woman pour out this flask, if, if we think of her as our picture of discipleship and devotion. Is that what we think of? It is, is pouring everything out for Jesus beautiful to us? Or is something less than pouring everything out okay? See, pouring out everything, all of our lives, for the sake of the glory of Jesus, to honor him, it's beautiful. And the totality of that matters, right? It's, it's not the hot or the cold that are spit out, it's the lukewarm, Following Jesus is, is a total commitment. He, he tells us and he bids us come, but we got to take up our cross. That is, we're going to lose our life in order to be found in him. We are to be a living sacrifice and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, not part of our body as a sacrifice. Something less than totality might assuage our guilt. It might ease our conscience, but it's not going to honor Jesus. And that's the point. Mark points us to an example of devotion and discipleship, an example of totality of giving, and something that's beautiful, that brings honor and glory to Jesus. And I think that it's beautiful, not only what she does, but that she's left unnamed. Even if we have suspicions that this is Mary, Mark doesn't tell us, and I think that he tells, doesn't tell us for a reason, that she's unnamed is interesting. Listen, he names the feast, he names the time, He's pretty specific. He's not very specific in time. Most of the time, he names the host that we see nothing else of in this entire gospel. Later, he's going to name specifically one of the disciples, Judas, but he doesn't name the woman. Perhaps she's unnamed as a way of sorts to invite others to her kind of devotion and discipleship. Now, this, this woman could be anyone. 
And she, she, she could be anyone. She, she's an outsider. She's clearly not part of the party. She has to break in. Right? She has to come in. She's a nobody. Maybe she's unlikely. Maybe no one would have thought that she would be there. Maybe she has a, a sordid past. Maybe she has a great past. We don't know what her past is with any past. She could be anyone, but she comes to honor Jesus. In other words, I think the invitation is, is kind of like that for us. Anyone can come in. Anyone can honor him. It doesn't matter the past. It doesn't matter who we are or who we are. Our name doesn't matter. We can be nobodies and outsiders and unlikely with any kind of past, and we can still come. Outsiders and the unlikely and the nobodies can honor Jesus if they'll lose their life in order to find it in him. We can do beautiful things. But as is often the case in the face of great devotion, uh, the response isn't all celebration. There's a varied response. Jesus warned his disciples often of this, that if they treated me harshly, they're, they're going to treat you harshly. And he even warned them, remember in chapter 13, he says, you're going to be delivered over, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be, some of you are going to die, like even some of your family are going to be betrayed by, by people that are close to you. And so when we look at this story, we need to remember that this isn't just a, a cute story with a happy ending. Oh, alabaster flask and pure nard, what an offering. Like, look at what's getting ready to happen to her. She's going to be hated. This episode is this, it costs this woman her alabaster flask. It costs her more than that. Look at verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her or harshly rebuked her. Now, from the other Gospels, we, we can kind of gain this thought that this is probably the disciples that are saying this, likely even led by Judas. That seems to be where it's going. And what they do is they, they look at what she's done and what she's offered, and they say, that's a waste. And honestly, they're right, practically speaking. Are they not? This could have been sold. We could have relieved so much. Her, her offering was so costly. I mean, we think that this could have been a year's wages for an average labor. How much could that do for people? How far could we stretch that in order to relieve some of the, the poor problems that we have all around us? How much could we do with this money if she'd just given it to us? It could have done so much good. And yet they know Jesus enough to know like Jesus cares for the poor. He wants the relief of the poor. He needs financial uh, help in order to do this. He needs some aid. Maybe she could have done that to that. And we could have done so much good with this. They're making some really good points. A year's wage could bring all sorts of relief. You could change all sorts of things around you with that much money given. And so all that makes their indignation... Their harsh rebukes of this woman seem a little bit righteous, does it not? And so they, in their self-righteousness, they, they scold this woman. What is she doing? What a waste. Make no mistake about it. Being wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, being one of his faithful disciples, can lead to indignation from other people. Can, condemnation, scolding, harsh rebuke, indignation from others. And so in other words, I think that if we're going to follow Jesus the way we're meant to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and go after him, to be wholehearted disciples, fully following him, we're going to have to be ready to face some of this. 
We're going to have to develop in us a, a deep satisfaction that comes from God alone. Because we're going to face harsh indignation, indignation, condemnation for others. We might be harshly rebuked. We have to become those who are satisfied with Jesus alone. That we have all the approval that we need in him. We have all the love we need in him. We have all the acceptance we need in him. We have to become like Paul. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he, he tells us kind of the, the attitude that, that we should have as he just states it for himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, this is how one should regard us, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm thereby not acquitted. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. He says, what you think, not ultimate. And he's not picking favorites here. He's not just saying, well, it's what I think. That's ultimate. He says, not even what I think, not ultimate. It's what the Lord thinks. It's his judgment that matters most. And that mattered most to Paul. So he'll do whatever it takes. He'll, he'll take all the suffering on upon himself if he can, for Christ's sake, serve him. It doesn't matter if he faces judgment from others or even judgment from himself. He says, it's the Lord's word. That's the one that matters. As servants, it's the pleasure of our master that matters most. And this is vital because indignation, rebuke, and discouragement is probably going to come for us at some time. And from this story, we can gather that it might come from some surprising sources. Not from the, the far off, the ones that we consider wicked and evil sometimes, but some that we think were, man, we shouldn't be facing harsh rebuke from this place, right? You remember in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been blind from birth. And the, the religious elite, they bring this man in and they question him, like, what has happened to you? And he testifies, but they bring his parents in. Because they don't believe his story. And listen to what his parents, right? Parents are supposed to be those who stick up for their children, who protect their children at all costs, who lay their lives down for their children, right? Here's what they say. He says, we don't know. We don't know what happened to him. Now, we know that's him, but we don't know what happened to him. Ask him. He's of age. You know what's on the line here for this man who is healed? Being cast out. Being ostracized from their society in a sense being exiled in a way, losing a lot of their social ties. And they say, you know what, just ask him. They're not going to put their neck out for him. And eventually, they do cast the man out because what he says is like, I don't know, I was blind and now I see. And it was this man that did it. But listen to what he says, what this, how the story ends in John chapter 9. It doesn't end with him being exiled and cast out only. Listen to what happens at the end of the story in chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus heard, and he found him. In other words, I think that if we're going to stand with Jesus, we can be assured that Jesus is going to stand with us. As they scold this woman, Jesus does that exact same thing. He steps in. Verse 6, Jesus said, and you wonder how sharply he says it, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
she has done a beautiful thing for me. And I think it's right to be encouraged by this woman's example and devotion and discipleship that she shows to Jesus. And the words that Jesus says about what she does, that she's done a beautiful thing, should encourage us. But I think that this story and these words that we find from Jesus here should also serve as a warning to us. This is a cautionary tale of sorts. Because those who are closest to Jesus are the ones that Jesus has to rebuke here. Those who are closest to Jesus are the ones that he has to say, leave her alone to. They were the harshest critics of what she had done. Those that were close to Jesus were the ones that lashed out against her in self-righteousness and harshly rebuked her. And they did this before they heard Jesus' response to what was going on. Before asking him any questions. Before seeing how he would deal with her. They lash out. In other words, it seems like they lack a, a right humility that would lead them to be a little bit suspect of their own quick judgments. They don't hesitate. They harshly rebuke. They scold. They go after her. One author says this, that the disciples seize on what Judas said, and as it has some show of plausibility, they're too harsh in forming a judgment. They ought, on the contrary, to have inquired more fully if the action deserved reproof, more especially when their master was present, by whose decision it was their duty to abide. But they don't. They don't wait, they don't hesitate, they just seize on it and they go after it. The disciples, they need to be wary of their own judgments, suspect their own hearts, slow to go to conclusions, to even open their mouths, to speak any sort of judgment and critique and criticism and harsh rebuke against this woman. And church, here's my fear. And I think this is what we need to hear, at least partly from the story, is that we can often be more characterized by this behavior than the woman's. That we can find ourselves so often more in the story in the disciples harshly rebuking this woman's pure devotion and worship of Jesus than we can in pure devotion and worship of Jesus. There's all sorts of plausibility in their indignation. We could justify their actions. They could justify their actions. Practically speaking, we could give a million arguments to why they're right. But they're lacking humility. And it's not just one of them. All of them are in this together now. And their lack of humility, their lack of hesitation in forming their judgments and critiques have put them in bad company we know later that Judas is going to go a little bit further than just this harsh critique and rebuke and scolding of this woman. Judas is going to go so far as to say, I'm going to bring Jesus down. I'm going to be a part of that. That's what I want to be a part of. Now, we know there might be a, a wide difference between Judas and all the rest. Yes, that might be true. But here they're together and on the wrong side. And it's not pretty. And it's all too easy for us to. We can be just like them and jump into judgment without sufficient knowledge of all that's going on, without clarity on what our Lord actually thinks about what's going on or not, without looking to Him for His approval or disapproval. And instead of asking questions and finding out more information, we can be quick to judgments. Instead of letting Jesus and His Word form our opinions, we can quick 
Be quick to be harsh and to scold instead of being hesitant to speak and slow to speak or suspect of our own motives and our own hearts. We can be quick to critique. And that is all just a form of our own pride. And it's deadly. And it might put us in the company of some people that we don't want to be in the company of. People like Judas, the chief priests and the scribes. One theologian said this, that spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. But a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The the proud person is apt to find fault with other believers, that they are low in grace and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He's apt to esteem others better than himself. Is that not what we are trying to do in following Jesus? Has he not commanded us that not just to consider others as equal to ourselves, but as better than ourselves, to put their interests above our own? And the struggle we have with that in reality is the struggle that we have with our own pride. We're quick to suspect others because we're prideful. We're suspicious of others and not ourselves because we have pride. I mean, does it mark us that we are apt to find fault with others, quick to note their deficiencies, or does it mark us that we're apt to find fault in our own lives? So concerned with the the sin in our own hearts that we almost don't even have, have room to find something like that in someone else. Man, may we become more like that in our following after Jesus, in our devotedness to Jesus. Certainly that's the direction that we'll go. The closer we see him and stick to him, the more we're going to suspect our own hearts and see their own wickedness, and the more we're going to see his greatness. And we're going to want more of him and following after him and less of being harsh in our critiques and rebukes and our scoldings. We want to be more like Jesus. Thankfully, what we have in this story is something to warn us in advance. To encourage us, yes, but to warn. And thankfully, this story shows us a good shepherd who steps in to protect his sheep. you got to love that about the shepherd here, right? That they harshly scold. They get in and they rebuke. And the shepherd steps in to protect his sheep. That's a shepherd that you can follow through the valley of the shadow of death, by the way. But he doesn't just protect. He also teaches. Listen to what he says in verse 7. After he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. We know that relief is, is near and dear to the, to the heart of God. It's so clear throughout all the scripture that, that the poor, that the powerless, that those without a name, that the nobodies have a, have a near place in God's heart. He, he repeats it over and over again throughout the scripture. So clearly, God cares for the poor. But the relief, the the care that they need most is not financial. It's something deeper than that. A lot more long-lasting than that. And that kind of relief is the kind of relief and the kind of care that Jesus came to give them. Jesus, we find out in the Gospel of Mark, came to give his life as a ransom 
not to just pay their financial debts on this earth, but to pay their financial debts that they have before God for all eternity. Debts that they cannot pay on their own. Debts that they have to have a God-man pay for them. And so enters the Son of God to give his life as a ransom for many. The relief that everybody needs is the relief that he comes to bring. Paul says it this way, that though he was rich, receiving glory and honor in this perfect, harmonious relationship within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past, perfectly satisfied that richness, he became poor. He was born, took on flesh, came in a manger, so that by his poverty, poverty that would extend, extend all the way to his Death, and not just a normal death, death on a cross. Ultimate poverty. The world saying, this is how lowly you are. You have lost that kind of poverty. Why? So that in him, we might become rich. Not financially. That would be so poor considering what he's talking about there. Like just to have financial riches would be such a low gift for the one who had all riches and came and became impoverished so that he could gain us so much more than financial things. It'd be such a little thing if it was just financial, if it was just earthly. No, he came to make us rich eternally. And so in a much more profound sense than the disciples know, this woman pours out her gift for the poor. Jesus being included in that. He was rich, he became poor, and she poured out her gift for the poor. But not only was it upon Jesus who has become poor? But she also pours it out for the poor in another way, in that she's preparing ultimately for his death, his ultimate poverty, so that he could provide for our ultimate poverty. Right? This woman's gift was appropriate and beautiful specifically because of Jesus' approaching death. Listen to what he says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So something more is at work than just a costly offering and an alabaster flask and some oil. This anointing is preparing Jesus for his death. Now this is a death that Jesus has not hidden. He started talking about it repeatedly starting in chapter 8. In chapter 8, 31, he says, I'm going to die. In chapter 9, 31, he says, I'm going to die. In chapter 9, 9, he says, I'm going to die. In chapter 10, he says, he's going to die. So this, is, this information that he is going to die, that he is moving towards his death, that he is getting closer and closer, that he even said, when we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered up. This is something that was known. The disciples should have known it. He told them it repeatedly. This is something this woman likely knows. We don't know how she came apart this, uh, along this information, but she knows it. She knows he's going towards his death. And so when she has an opportunity, when she knows that it's approaching, that his death is coming near, she does what she can, he says. She has done what she could. She, she believes his words and she prepares for it. And so she finds a time when she can get him ready the best that she knows how. She does what she can do. And what Jesus says that what she's done is, is beautiful. So profound. Preparing more than what we know. Probably speaking more than she knows and what even the disciples know. So profound that Jesus says in verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Like This is not because of the greatness of her offering, specifically. It's because of the greatness of the offering 
of who it's attached to. Right? It's because of the greatness of the one she gave the offering to that her story will be told. Right? This is a view beyond the grave, is it not? Here's what's assumed in this verse, that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. The gospel, good news of the Son of God, is going to be proclaimed. There's not good news if when he goes to Jerusalem, he meets his death, and that's the end of the story. No good news there. So there's an assumption if the gospel is going to be proclaimed, if good news of the Son of God is going to be proclaimed, then he's not going to stay dead. The gospel is going to be proclaimed. She's getting him ready. That there is good news is an assumption here. And that Jesus will be triumphant is assumed. And it's in view of the victory of Jesus and his greatness that this offering matters so much. It's going to be proclaimed. It's in view of the victory of Jesus and his victory over death that this verse 9 is true. And it's because he's raised that her story is going to remain. Not because of the greatness of her offering, but because of the greatness of the one she attached it to and gave it to and poured it out for. And so her beautiful offering is profound, profoundly loving, profound display of affection and devotion and faith in Jesus, profound in pointing to his death and even to his resurrection as far as she knows. But as beautiful as this woman's anointing is, Mark sandwiches it with something awful, right? It's like you're praying, playing the record, and I know record players are kind of back, they're the thing now, you, you do vinyl. It's the scratching. Uh, that's the song, the sound I remember from record players when I was growing up. It's the scratching. That's why you keep them away from kids, right? Because you're like, that's, just, that's more fun than just listening to the music sometimes. And that's what Mark does. Beautiful offering, alabaster flash. Treachery. Plotting. It's like we've gone. I haven't done this in a while, so Lord of the Rings reference again. It, we, we, we're hanging out in the Shire for a while. And everything's good there, right? They're dancing, they're celebrating, they're having parties, they're having a great time. But meanwhile, Mordor, like Mount Doom, the, the lava's like overflowing. Bad things are happening. And that's what Mark is doing. He's shifted from, from the Shire back to Mordor. Like the enemy's pushing out. Listen to verse 10. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12. It's like Mark can't help but identify him. It's like he was as close as possible to Jesus. He went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. Think about it. They were glad. There's rejoicing that someone would betray him so they could kill him. They were glad. So glad they even promised to give him money. And so he sought an opportunity to betray him. Again, it's displayed that closeness to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to him. Love to him, devotion to him. That's a needed warning for those who are, in a sense, hearing Jesus' words among Jesus' people. We need to hear the warning that that doesn't guarantee any sort of affection and great devotion toward Jesus at all. Judas' betrayal here of Jesus is stunning. Think of all he's seen and known. He's seen Jesus' character, his nature, he's seen his power, his love, his wisdom, his care. He's had a front row seat. But his response is so vastly different than what we just saw from this woman. Unnamed woman. It's contrasted with Judas, one of the twelve. This unnamed woman didn't have secret knowledge that Judas didn't have. She didn't know more about Jesus than Judas did. Clearly. She didn't know more than the chief priests or the scribes or the Pharisees. 
And yet we see this huge contrast. One group, the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas and this woman are so starkly contrasted. One knows a lot about Jesus and is treacherously plotting his demise and his destruction. While the woman, on the other hand, is beautifully preparing for his burial. I think Mark contrasts those to another to approach us with a question of, of why the difference? Why the, the contrast? I think it's all about who Jesus is. There's different responses stem from the identity of Jesus, not who he is in himself, but how what we believe about who he is, what we're convinced of on his identity. See, if Jesus is who he's claimed to be, the Son of God, the Son of Man, with all power and all authority and all might, the one who's going to give his life as a ransom for many, who's going to die and be raised on the third day, if he is who he's claimed to be, who he's shown himself to be, then the only right response is something along the lines of this unnamed woman. But if you're not convinced of that, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic, and maybe their response is a lot more reasonable. Right? We should either crown him or crucify him, I've heard. He's either who he says he is, or he's a liar, or worse. And he has not given us any wiggle room there. I love C.S. Lewis's words when he said that either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher or something else. Moral example, you name it. If he's something less than the son of God, then that's nonsense. He has not left the option open to us, and he did not intend to. The sandwich that Mark feeds us with encourages us, yes, with devotion and faith and worship to Jesus. But it should also warn us and show us that what we make of Jesus' identity is going to change how we respond and act toward him. And the differences are stark, but they're real. One is not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, and so they seek his crucifixion. One is convinced that he is going to his death, and so they prepare him for his burial in worship and honor of him. What we know about Jesus is not more or less than what Judas knew or the women knew, perhaps, but what will we do with this knowledge of Jesus? What are we going to make of his identity, and how are we going to respond? I think that's what the sandwich is meant to leave us with. Are we going to respond with devotion and worship as he deserves? Or would we rather seek his crucifixion, his demise? He hasn't left us an in-between, and he did not intend to. So as we read this story, let's either be encouraged to keep following, wholeheartedly devoting, but let's be warned, but let's also examine our hearts. Have we thought of Jesus as something less than what he has said and shown himself to be? And if so, let's repent and do this rightly. And one way you can show your love and devotion to Jesus if you're a follower of his is to, in a sense, re renew your commitment to him. 
Renew your faith in him by, by coming and participating in the things he's told you to participate in. The Lord's Supper is, in a sense, a, a renewal, a reminder that you, by your faith, are joined to Christ. And that if you're in him, then you're his. And that what he has accomplished has now been passed down to you. And that one day, you're going to receive what he receives, the inheritance. So if you're a believer... Be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf, of his death, burial, and resurrection. Come and take the supper. Be reminded of his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out. And renew again and be renewed in your faith and commitment and love for him as he is committed to you. If you're not a believer, we'd say repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. If you don't know what that looks like, and please find another believer and ask. We'd love for you to come and ask us what that means. And so, if you're a believer, this is the time. We're going to respond by obeying Jesus and taking his supper, by looking forward to his death, by reminding ourselves that he's going to come again. So just a few quick ways that we need to be reminded of to do this. We encourage you, pull out your hand sanitizer, put it in your hands, stay as far apart from people as you want to stay apart from them. We start from the, the back to the front and move our way down. In the back sections, you guys are just kind of on your own. There's only one station back there. But we've been running out sometimes in the middle section, so if we get here and there's room over here, feel free to break off to the different sides as well. But let's be reminded what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we remember today what you've done for us, the way that you poured out your very life as a sacrifice for our sins, you told us that we need to remember this woman as well when we preach your gospel in the way that she gave what was most valuable to her. And we want to be like that. We want to be like her. We want there to be no area of our lives, nothing in our lives that we are unwilling to give up in worship of you. And we don't need to scan and think of all the strange things that we could come up with to give away. We don't maybe need to go home and just sell all our stuff, or maybe some of us do. But we know one thing for certain that you want us to give up for you is our sin. You want us to continue to live lives of repentance. And you've even told us through your servant Paul that when we take your supper, we need to examine our hearts and we need to weigh them according to your word. We don't want to be like the disciples who are always quick to see the sins of others and call them out and rebuke this woman for her lack of compassion for the poor. Uh, it's way easier for us to see the sins of others than it is our own. And so, um, Holy Spirit, will you turn the searchlight on our hearts and just in these few moments reveal to us the things that we are clinging to and refusing to give up and turn from for you.
Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sins that is complete and total and that your salvation is not withheld from us based on how well we surrender or how hard we repent, but you require faith. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we don't have to worry about what other people think of us or what we even think of ourselves, but that we can take you at your word that when we put our trust in you, when we've turned from our sin and said we need you to be our king and our savior, that you are pleased with us and we are your sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased. That is good news and we want to rejoice in that today and we also ask God that you would open up blind eyes today and if there are hearts that are hard, they may know very much about your word. They may know Bible stories in every which way. Just like the disciples who were right beside Jesus for three years and yet were working against him and trying to undo him. God, if there are people in our presence today who are withholding their very lives from you and they've not turned from their sin and turned to you in faith, I pray that you would move their hearts, that you take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they could be your disciples and so that they could know the joy that we have in this meal and being your forgiven kids. Jesus, thank you so much. We love you and we long for your return. Help us to love other people as we love ourselves. In your name I pray, amen.